powerful grace. Man, I'm, I'm thankful this morning for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been talking about it, but we've been talking about it in the deep way, right? We've been talking about it in the, the truthful way. We've been talking about it just walking through this gospel of Matthew and uh, just, just watched as Christ prepared his disciples since chapter 16 of Matthew. It's been a little while that we've been talking about this as he's been telling them after, after Peter made the great confession, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus began to prepare these disciples for his death. And, and it's, it's been interesting. You know, we look back at Matthew 16, 21 through 23, and it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And we began to see this kind of battle taking place for understanding God's purpose and for understanding God's will and for understanding the grace that we just sang about, right? It's not this cheap grace. It's not this insignificant grace. Matter of fact, it's it's deep and profound grace. It's, it's deep and foundational grace. It's, it's deep and saving grace. And we've, we've come all the way through to chapter 27 where we finished last week talking about Christ yielding up his spirit on the cross and all that happened because of that. I mean, it was a, it was a profound day. It was the profound day, right? The next profound day is the resurrection, but this, this day where Christ yielded up his spirit, where Christ laid down his life, where no one took it from him, but he laid it down because he loves us, and where he became our sin, where he took the wrath of God for our sins that we deserved. I mean, it's, it's, it's profoundly loving. It's profoundly painful. It's profoundly sufficient. I mean, he did it for all. He didn't do it for a few. And so here we, we come to this place where Jesus is dead now. I mean, I want you to think about that because that's where we are today in the scriptures. And I mean, he's dead now for these guys. Uh, if you read the Gospels, uh, the disciples didn't really think it was going to happen. They didn't really understand that it needed to happen. They thought they had a better way. Sometimes we think we have a better way, but, but the cross shows us the, the depth of our own sin and the need, the depth of our need for salvation at such a profound level. But but if you could imagine, it all kind of happened far quicker than probably what they thought it was going to happen. Uh, here's the one who had done miracles and raised the dead and claimed to be the son of God, the son of man, the son of David, and he's dead. 
here's the one that these disciples had decided, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. You are the Son of the living God. But he's dead. I mean, they, they probably were in some sort of shock at least and at best confusion and despair. And so as we read these, these verses this morning, I mean, it's an interesting little passage of Scripture because it, it just talks about him being dead. And like, what now, right? So let's look at Matthew 27, beginning at verse 55, and let's read this passage this morning. Verse 55, many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples will come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, that set a seal on the stone. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your word because it points us to you, who you are, how you love us, the power and depth of that love displayed in Christ Jesus our Lord is so profound and humbling that sometimes, Lord God, we, we too quickly take you for granted. We don't realize the magnitude of your sacrifice. So thank you for your word that points us to it and calls us to consider it and calls us to worship you. Lord, I pray for those that don't know you here this morning, that have never experienced your presence, your forgiveness, the life that you have in Christ for us. I pray that today they would come into a personal relationship with you through faith in Christ where you might wash away their sins, make them the righteousness of God in Christ and, and make them your children, that they would know you as Father, the good Father and have life. I pray for those who, who do know you already, Lord, I pray that we would not pass by this little passage of scripture, but, but that you would reveal the things in it that we need to reveal and that you would transform our hearts and we might draw closer to you. 
And Lord God, I love you. I give you praise for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> you know, preaching through this, this book, we've talked about it before, you come to passages and you're like, all right, Lord, these passages are in your word. They're inspired by you. All things in the scripture are inspired by God. But you read these passages and you're like, Lord, what was, what was going on? And, and what's the meaning? What's the application of these passages? Because they're not all so easy. I mean, the cross was, was powerful and, and deep and, and, and full of things to consider. I mean, the darkness from noon to three. You know, the, the cry of Christ on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the recognition of what he was suffering for us and taking to save us and, and the, the power of the earthquake and the, the tombs being opened and the confession by the Roman centurion that this man truly was the son of God. I mean, all those things are deep and they're profound and things that we could take a great deal of time to think on and should but then we read in verse 55, after the centurion says, truly this was the son of God, we read many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and, and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And, and you kind of read that if you're going to study through this passage and you initially go, well, what is that about, Lord? I mean, well, what is it about that at this moment, after this, you know, deep, you know, picture of Christ and, and the suffering and him yielding up his spirit, why, Lord, do you insert in here many women were looking on from a distance? And, and honestly, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty sweet little, little thing when you begin to start thinking about it. I mean, simply put, it's a transitional time, Right? I mean, if you're really going to look at it, it's just this is a transitional uh, part of this gospel in chapter 27 between his death and his resurrection, if you will, or death and burial, if you will. But it's, it's, also, it's also pretty f profound in the way God works. I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we know God works, right? How many of you believe God works? I mean, we believe that. Praise God. But sometimes we don't, we don't believe God works all the time. We don't believe that God works in mundane situations. And we don't necessarily believe that God works in these, these moments of numbness, right? Can you imagine these followers of Christ at this point in time? This is Friday afternoon, right? It, it says that Later on, verse 57, it was evening. And Jesus yielded up his spirit about three o'clock. So between three and approximately six, when it would be getting dark, uh, they needed to deal with Jesus' body and the criminals on the cross because this was going to be the beginning of Sabbath and specifically the beginning of Passover festival, right? So they didn't want these bodies on the cross. And so... Uh, it's afternoon, Sabbath is about to begin, should have been a time of great worship and excitement. I mean, Passover was a great celebration where God, through, through the blood of the Passover lamb, 
protected the Israelites as the death angel came over Egypt and the Egyptians, you know, as God was delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. It, should, it was a great celebration, God's victory, God's, God's deliverance, right? And they, they loved Passover. It was one of the favorite festivals to celebrate and worship the living God. But these followers of Christ, you know, they weren't, they weren't excited about that. They were stunned. But then we still read many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee where, while ministering to him. And, and really for the first time in this gospel, we're introduced to some, some disciples that hadn't really been on the radar I mean, if you read the book of Matthew, the disciples that had been on the radar predominantly up to this time would have been the 12 for sure, because they would have been mentioned by name more often than others, Peter, James, and John more often than even those disciples. And you might've got the impression that sometimes the only people that were in close association with Jesus were these 12 men. You might have got the impression that the only ones that were in close association with Jesus were some other men besides them, but we haven't really been given the privilege to realize that there's many women that were also in very close association with Jesus Christ and involved in his life and involved in his ministry. And for one thing, it's pretty amazing to see that because it's incredibly important I mean, and if you really want to know the truth about this little passage of scripture here, all the men, for the most part, are gone. Most of the apostles were gone. But the women were looking on from a distance. They weren't allowed to get too close to the cross. I mean, the guards were there to deal with things. But but these ladies, even though Jesus had died, they still had this love for Christ and this loyalty to Christ, and they still wanted to minister to him even in his death. And, and again, I'm sure they were confused. I, I don't want to be unclear about that. These people did not expect him to die, even though he had told them clearly he was going to die. It was just unfathomable for them at that moment to realize that the Savior had to be a Savior that gave his life. And they should have known, they could have known, but it was just more than they could imagine. And so you see these, these precious women looking on from a distance, and, and we see them looking on because they want to know. What's going to happen to Jesus' body? They want to know. And I'm sure they wanted to know because they wanted to then somehow minister to him. They're going to go to the tomb on Sunday so that they can finish preparing his body for burial. They want to know where they're, what they're going to do with Jesus. And, you know, I think about that and I, I do. I kind of wonder... Lord, how does, that, how does that apply to you and I? Uh, because Jesus is not dead. <laughs> Jesus is alive. I mean, we're going to read that next week. Hallelujah. But the Bible gives us this time in between to see how these guys are responding. And, and if nothing else about these women, the fact that they were so loyal to Christ, uh, 
so willing to minister to him even in their confusion or disappointment or broken heartedness says a ton about how they loved him. Doesn't it? It says a ton about how they loved him. And and man, I I'm just humbled by the fact that that we're introduced to these women and all we can see about this group of women who he names only three of them is that the depth of love that they had drove them to even stay and see and then minister to him even in his death. And quite honestly, it ought to, it ought to humble us that there would be somebody that would be that committed to our Savior to do the ugly part at that moment to walk with him. Because let's just be honest, right? We, we talk about it a lot, that the commitment level that we often see from others within the body of Christ and even sometimes from ourselves when it comes to Jesus isn't necessarily a, an incredibly deep level of commitment. I mean, we don't really enjoy the less glamorous things about serving Jesus. We don't really enjoy the thought of going in a few days to find a dead body that we can then finish preparing for burial with the spices and the things that they would have used in those days. We, we don't really enjoy being behind the scenes and not being mentioned. We, we don't really enjoy deep faithfulness that's costly sometimes uh, because, you know, that's a selfless ministry. That's a, that is a ministry that brings no glory. It's a ministry that no one really cares to even talk about. And there are some ministries like that, right? I mean, even today, we're going to go out door to door. And I'm not, not trying, to, this is not a, a thing to manipulate you to try to come do door to door. But, but man, do you know how many people, I, I don't know how many, but I can pretty much tell you there's a ton of believers today that have no intention, no intention, no willingness to consider, absolutely no way they're going to go out and what they believe is humiliate themselves by speaking about Jesus to somebody they don't know. It may not be exactly the same, but there certainly are some similarities, aren't there? Going door to door, we find it to be intimidating. Sometimes people tell me, well, I don't think that's the best way to share the gospel. If you want to know the truth, I don't either. I think the best way to share the gospel is when you sit next to the people you work with and tell them about Jesus. Or sit next to the people in your family and tell them about Jesus. You walk next door to your neighbor that you've lived by for 10, 15, 20 years and talk to them about Jesus. I think that's the best way to show the gospel. 
but we're not doing that either. And quite honestly, I've shared this before. Casper, Wyoming is lost. Casper, Wyoming is lost. It's not a little lost. It's completely lost. And I've had people tell me, well, you know, there are people that know Jesus in Casper. Well, praise God, there's a few of us here. <laughs> Does that mean Casper's not lost? No. It's lost. How in the world is this city going to come to know Jesus Christ if you and I aren't willing to look on at a distance and see what's going on and then be ready to do something in the name of Jesus that's not very glamorous, which is sharing the gospel. And by the way, sharing the gospel is not glamorous until someone trusts Christ. And then it's just incredible. There's nothing more incredible, nothing more incredible than sharing the gospel and seeing someone by the power of the Holy Spirit recognize Jesus and confess him as Lord and watch their lives change. Watch them change. It's incredible. But we've got to be willing to be these women that, that until this place aren't even mentioned specifically by name at all. And now the only, well, only time we find them named is when they're looking at Christ on the cross and wondering what's going to happen to his body because they want to keep ministering to him in the hardest time of their life to minister to him. And we need to be that kind of people. We do. I know we don't want to be that kind of people because it's costly, because it's humbling, because it's not normal, because it's, it's, it's sacrificial. But do we love the Lord? I mean, it's always the question. It really is always the question. It's always about how much do we love him? If we love him, we will obey him. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. And he has commanded us to go. Matthew chapter 28, the great commission. We'll talk about it in just a couple of weeks. To go make disciples. It's not an option. It's not dependent upon how we feel. It's not dependent upon our time. It's not dependent on anything but do we love the Lord Jesus Christ enough to obey him as he calls us to go? And quite honestly, this sermon really isn't about evangelism. It's, it's not. It's about how much do we love him because these ladies love him. Everybody else is gone. These ladies are watching to see what's going to happen to Jesus because they're going to minister to him in the most inglorious way. And oh... Man, why, why don't we pray for God to help us serve him no matter what? Why don't we pray? I hope we pray. Because not only does the world need us to do that, but our Savior deserves that. He deserves that. He deserves that from us. Well, Tells us, you know, they'd followed Christ from Galilee while ministering to him. Tells us that while they were following, they were ministering to him. They were true disciples of Christ. It 
probably means that they were not only helping him along the way with whatever task needed to be done, but that they were also supporting him financially. I mean, these women had been faithful, and they're faithful now. And the names among them was Mary Magdalene, who all we know really about Mary Magdalene comes from Luke chapter 8, verse 2, where it says, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So what we know about Mary Magdalene is that Christ has set her free from seven demons. And now she's loving on him and following him and ministering to him. Then we're told, and we really don't know who this is, that the mother of James, Aunt Mary, the mother of James and Joseph was there. And scholars like to try to figure out who this was. And some of them say it was maybe even Jesus' mother. And quite honestly, I don't believe that because they would have said, Mary, Jesus' mother. So we don't really know who this this woman is, but I know this. Later on, we read that these two Marys followed where Jesus was buried. And then on the first day of the week, right, they were at the tomb. Pretty important, actually, in this passage incredibly important in this passage. And then we're told, and I, and I appreciate this, that the mother of the sons of Zebedee was there. Remember the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John? She's the one that came to Jesus and said, hey, grant me something, Lord. Grant that my sons can one sit on your right and one sit on your left. So, okay, maybe she had a little bit of, <laughs> a little bit of pride going on in her boys. But that's past. And she's there, right? She's watching because she loved Jesus. And I wonder in my own heart if they didn't have some question they'd heard him say he had to die, he'd rise again in all their hopelessness. I still wonder, did they have that spark? I don't know. But there they were, loving her Savior, even in the dark times. But they weren't alone in that. If you go a little further, verse 57, says, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. He rolled a large stone against it, against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Not only are we introduced to these women really for the first time, but now we're introduced to a guy named Joseph from a place called Arimathea. And it's interesting to me because it tells us that Joseph had himself become a disciple of Christ. But if you read the other Gospels, it's interesting because in John 19, 38, it says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus but a secret one for fear of the Jews. And if you read Luke 23, 50, it says that a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, came. In other words, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a religious leader. Doesn't tell us which side, doesn't tell us whether he's Sadducee, Pharisee, just tells us he was a member of the council. Doesn't tell us much about that other than 
he would have been a part of the group that had actually plotted against Jesus, though obviously he wouldn't have been one doing that. He would have been a part of the group that would have looked for liars to condemn Jesus. He would have been a part of the group that actually brought Jesus before Caiaphas in that group, and they unjustly condemned him and took him to Pilate, who unjustly condemned him. This would have been a man that would have had great stake in his political alliances and in his prominence within the community, right? No wonder it says he had been a secret disciple because if he had been an outward disciple, he would have certainly been cast out of the Sanhedrin and lost all of his influence and his positions. But again, we see a man that, that now takes a powerful stance Everyone would have known for sure that he was a follower of Christ when he went to Pilate and said, can I take the body of Jesus down? Now, what, what's interesting to me is that, that when someone died on the cross, the Romans didn't really care whether they took them down or not. The Romans, if it was anywhere for crucifixion, oftentimes left the body on the cross to rot. Or sometimes they would take the body off and cast it to the ground and let it decay on its own or let animals take it. I mean, the Romans were crude and they wanted to be crude because they wanted to let people know if you're going to do these crimes and end up on that cross, you're nothing but garbage to us. Now, the Jews were a little more civilized than that. So typically when the Jews would have someone on the cross, they, they were instructed by the law not to let a body hang on a tree overnight, right? They were instructed to take that body off the tree before dark, and so they would do that. But even the Jews with the criminals, they didn't bury them in family plots, if you will. They usually buried them in like a group place away from family and away from any kind of special treatment because the criminals, even in the Jewish culture that ended up on the cross, uh, they weren't in any way honored at all. And so when Joseph came, who was a rich man, right? Who was a rich man. It says there, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea. Joseph immediately began to to show his love for Christ, even in his death. I mean, he's a, he's a rich man. He could have paid somebody else to deal with Jesus' body. He could have maybe sent somebody else before Pilate. He wouldn't have had to necessarily embarrass himself or expose himself as the one who's so in love with Jesus. He could have done any number of things, but here comes this rich man before Pilate. And quite honestly, I'm sure he knew to some degree that if he was actually going to be able to treat Jesus with the respect that he wanted to treat Jesus, even in his death, he was going to have to do this on his own because only rich men and influential men were going to be even able to have an audience with the governor and then have the governor grant him his request. So Joseph had to take this stance. And it's, it's powerful to me because I'm sure that he really 
at least up until this point, obviously didn't want people to really know who he was. He didn't really want to be called out. He didn't want to be exposed. He wanted to have his cake and eat it too. He wanted to have his savior and his world at the same time. Anybody like that today? Anybody like that today? Anybody want to Make sure you have a Savior, but you don't want anybody to know about your Savior because, man, if you expose yourself as a Christian today, right, there's some people that are going to hate you for it. They're going to hate you for it. They're going to dislike you. They're going to work against you. They're going to have a problem with you. Isn't that true? I mean, listen, I know I may be a pastor, but I, I get that treatment sometimes, sometimes because I'm a pastor, but sometimes just because I want to talk to people about Jesus, right? People don't really appreciate you telling them that they're sinners. And you don't have to say it so plainly. You just have to tell them that they need saved because they're lost, because they've sinned against God and they're separated because of their sins. That's all you got to tell some people. And man, they really hate that stuff, Right? But Joseph had been brought to this place by God where God said, you're going to have to take a stand. If you love Jesus, stand. If you love Jesus, stand. Do you think God's still saying that to his children today? More so than here. Because you and I have far more reasons to stand, far more evidence of Christ's victory, of his resurrection, of his power, of his glory, of his goodness, far more reasons for us to stand today than for Joseph to stand. Because these guys could not believe Jesus died. They They didn't expect him to. I mean, Joseph didn't expect him necessarily to raise from the dead or he wouldn't have buried him probably the way he did you got to see that these guys are serving Jesus even though they don't have the hope that you and I have. What is our excuse? What is our excuse? And let me tell you this, there is no excuse. There's no excuse not to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us and rose from the dead. You and I have security in Christ. We have peace in Christ. We have wisdom in Christ. We have strength in Christ. We have life in Christ. We are not to fear the one that can kill the body, but instead fear the Lord God Almighty who can not only kill the body, but then destroy the soul in hell as well. Isn't that true? But most of us, again, we have a love problem. We have a love problem. The problem with this is Not that we are too weak or that we are too indifferent. The problem is we don't love Christ the way we say we do. If we love him, he says, we will keep his commandments. We will obey him. We will show our love for him because we know how much he has loved us. Matter of fact, Jesus taught, Those who have been forgiven much, right, do what? Love much. Have you been forgiven much? Man, I still sometimes am so humbled and broken by the depth of my sin that I still have times where I'm like, Lord, how 
How and why would you love me? And yet I know that he loves me because of Christ. Now, if I've been forgiven that much and loved that deeply, why? Why is it so hard to love him and obey him? See, our problem is love. Joseph of Arimathea is saying to Jesus, even in his death, I love you. I may not understand this moment. You've died. And I don't know what to do about that. But I love you so much that I'm going to publicly go to the governor and I'm going to be outed. Everyone's going to know. I'm no, I'm no half in, secret follower of Christ. I'm yours. My faith was in you, and it's still, I'm standing with you. That's remarkable to me, to the place where he went to Pilate. Pilate granted him the, the opportunity to take the body down, and he takes a dead body. I'm sure he had help, but he takes this dead body off the cross. He wraps it in a linen cloth, clean, white, and pure. And he takes Jesus to his new tomb. And all that means is that Joseph had hewn into the solid rock a space where they would have made, if you will, benches, where they would have laid bodies. It was made for a family, made for his family. And a new tomb, all it means is that no one had ever laid there before. No one had ever been placed in that tomb before. It was new. It was his. It was for his family. It was personal was intimate. Then he would have taken the body of Jesus. He would have put it in that tomb. And then he rolled a stone across it. Uh, if you've ever had the chance to go to Israel, you see them. They're there still. Even as you drive through Israel, you see stones rolled across the graves. The stones were there to keep robbers out, to keep animals out. It was there to keep the smell in. It was there to make it secure and safe. Is there to mark the place where a loved one had been laid in death. And Joseph, by laying Christ in this new tomb, his tomb, his family's tomb, was in every way he could possibly do, saying, I love my Savior. Though I don't understand what's happening right now. And again, we see just this this gracious, if you will, depth of love and service that I believe all of us should just simply be called to. We're simply called to it. And it's a privilege. If you know him here today, it's a privilege. I get, I do, I get that there are times where you go to serve the Lord and you're like, Lord, this is hard. This is hard. There are times when we're tired. There's times when we realize that there's opposition that lies against us when we go. There's times where you're just tired of having to battle and having to pray and having to give. There's just times when you'd rather stay at home and pull a blanket up and be mindless. Isn't there times? But the privilege of serving Jesus is that 
we show how much we love him by giving what we give for him. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth our love. Even his enemies. Well, let me read verse 61 because it's important. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Let me just say this. These women, they're pretty amazing. Amazing in that they were watching from the cross to see what was going to happen with his body. They were at the grave watching from a distance to see where he was laid. Verse 1 of chapter 28 tells us they were at the cross or at the resurrection at the grave. And guess what happens by these faithful women? They were able to testify. We watched him die. We saw his dead body come off the cross. We saw Joseph carry his dead body to the tomb. And we watched that stone be rolled across the grave. And when they found that tomb open, when they found that tomb open on resurrection morning, they could stand there and say, that guy was dead. Our Savior was dead. And now he's alive. Remember what I said about God moving? God was in the women, wasn't he? Because they were going to be witnesses to what Christ was going to do. God was in Joseph of Arimathea. He was going to be a witness. I carried his lifeless body down from the cross and over to the tomb. His lifeless body is gone because he's alive. Guys, don't miss that even when it is dark and difficult and trying, that God's working. Don't you ever think he's not? He's always working. So these ladies, man, they were a witness. And man, I, I love 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. It says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You think those women and Joseph of Arimathea weren't going around telling you, let me tell you about my Savior. He died, he was buried, and he rose again according to the scriptures. And he's the one that saves. Sweet, isn't it? To see how God works in the dark. Well, let's finish this passage. Because the dark works in the dark. Verse 62 says, Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Now I... <laughs> I don't care much for these guys. I won't lie to you. I don't care much for these guys. These guys make me mad. I rode with a young police officer the other night, and he says, I'm not real religious because I used to live in a place where there was a bunch of religious people, and he says, I, I knew they weren't sincere, so I don't have much stake in religion. Well, my response to him was, so when I read about bad cops, that means you're a bad cop too, huh? <laughs> He's like, ah, I'm like, yeah, you don't get to do that to me. <laughs> Listen, it's still painful though, isn't it? At some level, you're like, I hate it that there's godly men, supposedly godly men, these hypocrites that Christ called them that are out there and they're not for God, they're against God. And even in his death, they come back and they, they manipulate, they go back to Pilate and they, they say, man, this this guy that we don't really believe in claimed that when he would die, he would rise again. Now, they'd never, they'd never confessed that before, that they'd heard that from Jesus. 
but it was expedient for them to say that now because then they could manipulate Pilate somehow to put this guard out there. But, you know, before they found some false witness that said he claimed to destroy the temple in three days and rise it up again, they knew what he was talking about even then. They knew he claimed that he was going to die and rise in three days, but they never said that because all they cared about was killing him. And even though they killed him, they were still afraid that he was going to rise from the dead and he was going to make them look really bad. And he did. And so they're manipulating even in this brokenness and in this wickedness that they were responsible for. They're trying to get Pilate to do something to their bidding. And so they say, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead and his last deception will be worse than the first. And really, you could translate to saying, if he rises from the dead, we're going to look incredibly bad because we're going to be known for the hypocrites that we really are. So they're trying to do everything to control that situation in their flesh. Well, I love Pilate. He wasn't much of a man either. We'll just be honest about that. He was a, he was a pretty low life too. But Pilate says, you've got a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. In other words, Pilate says, I'm not going to let you put this on me. Pilate, he was kind of a slippery guy. He wanted to wash his hands of the responsibility of Christ, even though he condemned him to death. And now he's trying to slip out of the responsibility of making this grave secure. And he tells him, you have a, you have a guard. And the scholars try to debate whether it was a Roman guard they'd been given or whether it was a Jewish guard that they had later on in chapter 28 after Christ rises from the dead. And these guys have failed to secure the tomb. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees tell them later on, Hey, you say somebody, you know, came and overpowered you. And if it gets all the way to Pilate, where you could lose your life, we'll win him over. These were Roman guards. Pilate says, you take your Roman guards and you go make that grave secure as you know how. And they went out and they made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. And, and here's a simple picture these men, they knew what scoundrels they were and they knew what Jesus had claimed and they knew whether they believed or not doesn't matter. They knew he was not an ordinary man and they thought they could stop the purpose of God with their flesh and their power. And so they set that guard out there and they put a seal on it, would have been some form of a wax seal with the stamp of the Sanhedrin on it saying anybody that opens this grave is going to be under the wrath and the judgment of the Sanhedrin. Leave this grave alone. And really what they were doing was they were burying themselves because he was going to rise. And their hypocrisy was going to be known. Man, Jesus at this time was dead. His followers, they were displaying their love for him. It must have been broken and it must have been difficult and it must have been costly. 
And it certainly wasn't glamorous. But man, they loved him. He had changed their life. And they couldn't stop loving him. And they did. You and I, we should all be about loving him. We should love, do you love him? I'm not asking you if you say you love him with your mind. I'm asking if your life displays that you love him. His enemies, we couldn't expect anything more from them. They hated him to bring him to death. And in his death, they hated him still. And they still thought they could put their hands on the work of God in salvation and prevail. There's going to be another earthquake. There's going to be another demonstration of God's power. We're going to get to see it next week. But don't you think for an instant that your pride or your arrogance or your ability or your wisdom can stop the move of God in this world when it comes to salvation? Nope. Nope, God cannot be stopped. He will not be stopped. So for some of us, it's time to repent of the pride and come underneath the Lord God and say, I am a sinner. I need you. Will you forgive me of my sins and make me your child because I want to walk with you and love you and worship you. And if you do claim him, then love him more. Love him more. Let it be simple. We know he's alive. Hallelujah. Let's pray.